0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode twenty five We Rose Fighting. The Indiana legislature sent John Pettit to the U.S. Senate because they thought he opposed the growth of slavery. The evidence for this was scanty, apart from Pettit abstaining on a vote to ban slavery in the territories when he was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. And as historian John Wickery notes, Pettit came under the sway of Indiana's senior senator, Jesse Bright, a political boss who represented the ostensibly free state while owning slaves across the river. In Kentucky, if Pettit ever had reservations about human bondage, he tossed them aside once drawn into Bright's orbit on February twentieth, eighteen fifty four Pettit rose to deliver a speech on a bill organizing the Kansas and Nebraska territories. The legislation authorized slavery where it had once been banned and caused a storm of controversy the Indiana senator first spoke in opposition to a provision allowing Congress to veto laws passed by the territorial governments. But Pettit quickly passed from dry lawmaking to flat-out racism. He denounced the mixed-race population of Mexico and said that Native Americans had a, quote, doom placed upon them by a higher law. It is inevitable. And then Pettit offered what he called, quote, one little reflection as to ultra extreme abolitionism. He said, quote, It is alleged that all men are created equal, and the Declaration of Independence is referred to to sustain that position. However unpopular, or however displeasing it may be to the mass of my fellow citizens, I am constrained to dissent from any such position or dogma. It is not true in fact, it is not true in law. It is not true physically, mentally, or morally that all men are created equal. Pettit went on to say, I cannot, in the first place, believe that Mr. Jefferson ever intended to give the meaning or force which is attempted now to be applied to this language when he said, We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. I hold it to be a self evident lie. There is no such thing. Tell me, sir, that the slave in the South who is born a slave and with but little over one half the volume of brain that attaches to the Northern European race is his equal, and you tell me what is physically a falsehood. There is no truth in it. Pettit's absurd view of biology had no truth in it either but many contemporaries were stunned by Pettit's brazen assault on the Declaration of Independence. When Pettit attempted to speak in Lafayette, Indiana, he was, quote, groaned and hissed at, according to the New York Times. On Independence Day, 1854, an Indiana newspaper printed the Declaration in full and asked if these were, quote, self-evident lies. Pettit's speech ended his career as an elected official. But Senator Bright and his pro-slavery allies later found lucrative appointments for this opponent of human equality. Abraham Lincoln never forgot Pettit's speech. As late as 1858, he denounced it as shameful. The Declaration of Independence, with its expansive, broad view of human liberty and development, was the cornerstone of Lincoln's political philosophy, a bedrock of republicanism that recognized no artificial distinctions between classes of individuals. Pettit had a vision of a nation that would be ruled by a master class. It was becoming clear that given a choice between Republican virtues and white supremacy, slaveholders and many of their allies would go for the latter. During the decade, a newspaper in Muskegee, Alabama wrote, quote, Free society, we sicken of the name. What is it but a conglomeration of greasy mechanics, filthy operatives, small-fisted farmers, and moonstruck theorists? All the northern, and especially the New England states, are devoid of society fitted for well-bred gentlemen. Lincoln was no well-bred gentleman, and he did not see government's chief aim as protecting the powerful. In private notes composed in the 1850s, Lincoln wrote, The legitimate object of government is to do for a community of people whatever they need to have done, but cannot do it all or cannot so well do for themselves in their separate capacities. Lincoln and many other Northerners feared the Territorial Act that prompted Pettit's speech was an attack on Republican government itself. In a later autobiographical statement, Lincoln described the years from 1849 to 1854 as a time when he lost interest in politics and, quote, practiced law more assiduously than ever before. There is some truth in this statement. Lincoln's correspondence for 1853 is almost devoid of political talk. But he never fully stepped away from the public sphere. Through 1850, Lincoln corresponded regularly with Whigs in Washington, providing political intelligence on Illinois. That same year, he advised Richard Yates, who won Lincoln's old congressional seat back for the Whigs. Lincoln also drafted bills for the Illinois General Assembly and in 1852 accepted an appointment to a legislative commission that investigated claims against the Illinois and Michigan Canal. But Lincoln's electoral prospects were dwindling. In 1852, the Whigs nominated General Winfield Scott for president, amid a split between their northern and southern wings. The party issued no platform. Their economic program seemed outdated, and the party had no other ideas they could agree on. Lincoln himself seemed to have little to say. He dutifully took the stump for Scott in 1852, but his speeches were defensive, less about advocating a cause than countering attacks on the general. In an August address, he accused Democratic nominee Franklin Pierce of being, quote, the steady, consistent enemy of Western improvement. But he could offer little to recommend Scott. And neither could other Whigs. Pierce stomped to victory. In 1848, Whig nominee Zachary Taylor came close to carrying Illinois. In 1852, Pierce defeated Scott in the state by a 10% margin. Amid the gloom, there were hints of a path forward. The Illinois House delegation grew from seven members to nine after the 1850 census. In 1852, the Whigs captured four new congressional seats in the growing northern part of the state, giving them their largest presence in the state congressional delegation since 1840. The Whigs won through alliances with Free Soilers and by appealing to the New Englanders settling northern Illinois. These alliances would be critical amid the coming earthquakes. Perhaps recognizing the hopelessness of Scott's cause, Lincoln's August speech focused more on his old rival Stephen Douglas. Lincoln spent much of his speech nitpicking earlier addresses by the senator. At one point, Lincoln exclaimed, quote, What wonderful acumen the judge displays on the construction of language. When the builders of the Tower of Babel got into difficulty about language, if they had just called on Judge Douglas, he would, at once, have construed away the difficulty and enabled them to finish the structure upon the truly democratic platform on which they were building. Douglas likely didn't notice the speech, or care about it if he did. While Lincoln tried to shore up the Whig cause in Springfield, Douglas traveled the country on Pierce's behalf, drawing large crowds. Loyal Democrat though he was, Douglas still nurtured his own ambitions for the White House. He thought he could pull the party behind him by turning its attention west toward settlement of the Great Plains and the construction of a transcontinental railroad. The giant area west of Iowa and Missouri had perhaps 1,000 white residents in 1853 it lacked a territorial government. That meant no one could claim title to the land, which meant no one could purchase land for farms or railroads. Douglas saw the railroad to California coming, and he wanted to secure Chicago or Superior Wisconsin as the eastern terminus of the railway. It was certain to spur development wherever it went. It would also line his well-cushioned pockets still further. But other politicians, like Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, preferred a southern route. St. Louis was another possible terminus. The Transcontinental Railroad became an issue in an exceptionally bitter U.S. Senate battle in Missouri. Former Senator Thomas Hart Benton was a slaveholder who had been the unquestioned leader of the state's Democrats until the late 1840s, when he began to oppose the spread of slavery. This stand cost him his Senate seat, but Benton later won election to the U.S. House. He wanted his old job back and targeted Missouri Senator David Atchison, a vitriolic defender of slavery. Benton fought to make St. Louis the final stop on the railroad from California and castigated Atchison for not supporting the organization of the territory west of Missouri. Atchison, thrown on the defensive, pulled out a radical proposal. He would support a territorial government for the area, but only if it allowed slavery. That ran counter to the Missouri Compromise, which in 1820 banned slavery in territories north of a line along the modern northern border of Arkansas and Oklahoma. Northerners considered it a sacred pact. But white Southerners argue that the Compromise of 1850, which allowed whites in Utah and New Mexico, and nowhere else, to decide the legality of slavery created a new controlling precedent. Atchison later claimed that he forced Douglas to introduce the Kansas-Nebraska bill. Douglas was in a weak position. The Southerners who dominated President Pierce's administration disdained him, particularly Jefferson Davis, who was stacking the government with white Southern nationalists and resented Douglas for getting the nation-saving compromise of 1850 through Congress. As chair of the Senate's Committee on Territories. Douglas needed Southern support to hold on to his chair and get any territorial bill through. Atchison said that he effectively threatened to strip Douglas of his chairmanship if he did not introduce the bill. The Kansas-Nebraska Act, filed by Douglas on January 4, 1854, organized two new territories in the Northern Plains and said states formed out of them could be admitted with or without slavery. Douglas's original bill hedged by saying the Missouri Compromise would remain operative until statehood took place. But Archibald Dixon, a Kentucky Whig who took Henry Clay's old Senate seat, soon introduced an amendment to repeal the Missouri Compromise entirely. Under pressure from Southern Democrats who didn't want Whigs to get the credit, Douglas tore a piece of blue paper and hastily wrote an amendment that explicitly repealed the Missouri Compromise. Northern Whigs like William Seward quickly grasped what Douglas was trying to do, but held their fire at first in order to keep their Southern colleagues in line. The Free Soil Party had no Southern Wing and no qualms attacking the measure. The party had dwindled in number and its congressional caucus was small, but it contained talented politicians like Ohio Senator Samuel Chase and Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner. When Douglas asked the Senate to move the Kansas-Nebraska Act on January 23rd, Chase and Sumner both asked for a week's delay to allow them to study it. Douglas, thinking this was a pro forma courtesy, agreed. But Chase and Sumner knew very well what was in the bill. That afternoon, an abolitionist newspaper printed The Appeal of the Independent Democrats, signed by Chase, Sumner, and four other politicians. It openly attacked the bill as a repeal of the Missouri Compromise, and more Northerners it would spread slavery. It said, quote, we arraign the bill as a gross violation of a sacred pledge, a criminal betrayal of precious rights, part and parcel of an atrocious plot to convert a vast territory consecrated to freedom into a dreary region of despotism inhabited by masters and slaves. The North erupted in anger. Douglas was burned in effigy. The New York Tribune, a leading Whig newspaper, declared that the bill was quote the first great effort of slavery to take American freedom by the throat." It continued quote, "Should success attend the movement, it is tantamount to a civil revolution and an open declaration of war between freedom and slavery on the North American continent to be ceaselessly waged until one of the other party finally and absolutely triumphs." As historian Michael Holt writes, quote, Sewardites repeatedly charged, and many of them undoubtedly believed, that regardless of climate, slaveholders would take their chattels anywhere they legally could, and that consequently, the bill opened the possibility of slavery extension into a vast area long promised exclusively to non slaveholders, especially northern non slaveholders. Southern slaveholders, as if released from a weary weight of courtesy, attacked the very idea of freedom. South Carolina Senator Andrew Butler declared that, quote, Abolitionists cannot make equal whom God has made unequal. Douglas spit acid at Chase and Sumner, accusing them of being elected corruptly, and attacked Ohio Senator Benjamin Wade for defending racial equality. Quote, He said that in Ohio, a Negro was as good as a white man, with the avowal that he did not consider himself any better than a free Negro. I have only to say that I should not have noticed the appeal if none but free Negroes had signed it. That was what the congressional record said. Historian Sidney Blumenthal notes the record was amended to substitute Negro for a racial epithet. Douglas's measure passed the Senate easily. The key battle was in the House, which was divided. The Pierce administration traded patronage for votes while Douglas worked in the hallways. At one point, he put a politician in a headlock to get them to agree to the bill. Douglas later wrote to his brother-in-law quote, "The speeches were nothing." The bill squeaked out of the House. Pierce signed it at the end of May. With one stroke. Douglas cut the moorings of the antebellum party system. Southern Democrats united in support of the measure, but many Northern Democrats recoiled from it. The Pierce administration offered Senator Hannibal Hamlin, a Democrat from Maine, all the patronage in New England in exchange for his support. Hamlin refused, citing his self-respect. In Illinois, Douglas's high-handed attempts to get the General Assembly to pass measures in support of the Nebraska Act split the seemingly invincible Illinois Democratic Party. But Douglas and a core of northern democrats stood with their southern colleagues to support Kansas-Nebraska. The Whigs fell to pieces. Most southern whigs initially opposed the act for its threat to national unity, but the attraction of slavery and the relentless assaults of local democratic newspapers cause many to knuckle under above the Mason-Dixon line, Douglas's rash move instantly united the anti-slavery and conservative wings of the Northern Whig party who had been feuding over patronage and the Fugitive Slave Act. Lincoln followed the debate through the newspapers and shared the Northern Whig's fears of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Herndon later wrote, quote, "In the office discussions, he grew bolder in his utterances. He insisted that the social and political difference between slavery and freedom was becoming more marked, that one must overcome the other, and that postponing the struggle between them would only make it more deadly in the end. As Lincoln later pointed out, slavery crept into American law not through explicit authorization, but via regulations passed after slaveholders settled in a territory. Though Lincoln had moral objections to slavery, he feared that unleashing slavery where it had been banned would undermine the nation's hard won Republican institutions, forcing Northern whites to submit to a slaveholding class as Southern whites did in that region. As historian Alan Guelzo wrote quote, Slavery, in the eye of Abraham Lincoln, was the sign of the seeming return of romantic aristocracy to American minds. Lincoln's anti slavery views were only tangentially connected to race. Not because he was what we would call a racist, but because slavery was bigger than race. Lincoln said nothing public about the act during the debate or immediately after its passage. He rarely delivered political speeches before August, near the time he headed out on the legal circuit. Historian David Herbert Donald also notes Lincoln's legal practice was busy in the first half of the year. But historian Michael Burlingame says Lincoln did submit anonymous editorials to the Illinois Journal, denouncing the act. In one, responding to an editorial in the Democratic-controlled Illinois State Register, Lincoln wrote, quote, If the principle of free government means anything, the black man must stand on the same footing of governing himself as the white man. The Register with one blow would annul the grandest principle of free government, and give to 10,000 slaveholders from the South the privilege of setting up slave pens in Nebraska, thus widening the foulest curse and fostering the most insidious enemy that holds in the bosom of our republic. As Lincoln stewed, Northern voters turned on the Democrats. In summer elections in Iowa and Maine, both Democratic strongholds, the party was routed. Douglas decided to take the road in defense of the act. From the beginning, the senator defended the law on the basis of what he called popular sovereignty. The senator believed that local white communities should have the final say on their laws, without interference from outside agents. If a community wanted slavery, that was their right. If they did not, they could so choose. But Douglass argued that the choice was more important than human enslavement. He said, It is apparent that the Declaration of Independence had its origin in the violation of the great fundamental principle which secured to the people of the colonies the right to regulate their own domestic affairs in their own way, and that the revolution resulted in the triumph of that principle and the recognition of the right asserted by it. The argument assumed that African Americans had no stake in the nation. An argument Douglas happily put forth. But for once, it didn't work. At a September 1st rally in Chicago, Douglas was greeted by, quote, a thunder of deep throated groans as perhaps never was heard in Chicago before. The audience repeatedly heckled and baited Douglas, who took the bait and screamed back at them. After a few hours of this, the senator claimed that he ended the meeting by saying, quote, it is now Sunday morning. I'll go to church, and you may go to hell. With Democrats in disarray, opponents moved in. Lincoln contacted other politicians putting together an anti-Nebraska coalition in Illinois. This was not a new political party, but an alliance of politicians coming together on a single issue. But that single issue was enough. Lincoln tried to lure John Palmer, a Democratic state senator who opposed the act, into the coalition by appealing to his vanity. Lincoln wrote, quote, Had your party admitted to make Nebraska a test of party fidelity, you probably would have been the Democratic candidate for Congress in the district. You deserved it, and I believe it would have been given to you. Lincoln finally took the stump in August. Ostensibly to help re elect Whig Congressman Richard Yates. But Lincoln soon developed his own critique of the Nebraska Act. At Bloomington on September 12th, Lincoln urged his audience to vote anti Nebraska politicians into the House, saying, The people were the sovereigns and the representatives their servants, and it was time to make them sensible of this truly democratic principle. In early October, Lincoln took his campaign to Springfield, where the Illinois State Fair was taking place. The event brought people from all over Illinois to Springfield, and was a unique opportunity for politicians to speak to a statewide audience. Douglas and many of his opponents addressed the crowds. During the fair, Douglas pushed forward his popular sovereignty hypothesis, but also threw up his fog of disinformation. He accused his opponents of being un-American and, if such a thing were possible, un-Illinoian. Douglas said, quote, I tell you the time has not yet come when a handful of traitors in our camp can turn the great state of Illinois with all her glorious history into a Negro-worshipping, Negro-equality community. Again, Douglas probably used a stronger word than Negro. Lincoln responded in an address in the Illinois House chamber on Wednesday, October 4th. It was a warm day. Lincoln spoke in his shirt sleeves. Douglas sat in a chair directly in front of him. As was often the case in Lincoln's speeches, witnesses said Lincoln started in a low and hesitant tone of voice. But as he warmed to his work, Lincoln became more expressive, gesturing with his head and his body to make his points his high-pitched voice carrying to every corner of the chamber. Lincoln's address ran about 17,000 words. It's one of his longest speeches, but it was long out of necessity. Lincoln knew Douglas's ability to pour out half-truths and ad hominem attacks that were difficult to answer. He spent weeks before the address in the State Library, researching history and lining up his arguments like tightly fitted bricks in a wall Douglas couldn't penetrate. Lincoln was also trying to create a direct personal contrast between himself and his opponent. Where Douglas would yell and bluster, Lincoln would be calm, rational, and logical. Where Douglas engaged in nasty personal attacks, Lincoln said from the beginning he was not attacking personalities, but ideas. He presented himself as the Comrock rock over which Douglas's bluster would break. According to Herndon, Douglas repeatedly interrupted Lincoln during the speech. When Lincoln noted that Douglas had once voted to extend the Missouri compromise line, Douglas blurted, quote, and you voted against extending that line, Mr. Lincoln? There was laughter in the chamber. Lincoln, timing his answer, replied, yes, sir, because I was in favor of running that line much further south. The crowd roared. Lincoln's speech rebuked Douglas's interpretation of the Declaration of Independence and warned of the ruinous effects of the Kansas-Nebraska bill. Unlike Douglas, Lincoln believed the key phrase in the Declaration of Independence was all men are created equal. To Lincoln, this was the, quote, ancient faith of the Founders. He said, quote, No man is good enough to govern another man without that other's consent. I say this is the leading principle, the sheet anchor of republicanism. Lincoln said slavery was, quote, a total violation of this principle. The master not only governs the slave without his consent, but he governs him by a set of rules altogether different from those which he prescribes for himself. Of course, the United States was born with slavery. Many of the founders participated in the sin. But Lincoln argued they recognized the sin and sought to contain it, detailing a long list of anti-slavery legislation starting with the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. As Lincoln said of slaveholders, quote, The perfect liberty they sigh for, the liberty of making slaves of other people, Jefferson never thought of their own father never thought of. They never thought of themselves a year ago. It's important to note that throughout the speech, Lincoln denied he sought equal rights for African Americans. He had a vague sense that African Americans had a right to self-determination, but he remained true to his idiotic belief in colonization, refusing to see blacks as his fellow countrymen. If he acknowledged colonization was impractical, he also argued that freeing all the slaves and letting them live in peace in the country of their birth was also impractical. He said, My own feelings will not admit of this, and if mine would, we will know that those of the great mass of white people will not. Whether this feeling accords with justice and sound judgment is not the sole question, or indeed is it any part of it a universal feeling whether well or ill founded cannot be safely disregarded we cannot then make them equals this was a moral valley for lincoln one he would not escape until the end of his life if he ever did in these boundaries though he acknowledged the humanity of african americans something douglas never would He asked why slaveholders, legally at least, could not enslave the North's free black population. He said, In all these cases, it is your sense of justice, of human sympathy, continually telling you that the poor Negro has some natural right to himself, that those who deny it and make mere merchandise of him deserve kickings, contempt, and death. And now, why will you ask us to deny the humanity of the slave? and estimate him only as the equal of the hog. Why ask us to do what you will not do for yourselves? Lincoln dismissed Douglas's arguments that climate would keep slavery out of the Midwest as, quote, a palliation, a lullaby. He said, quote, a white man takes his slave to Nebraska now. Who will inform the Negro that he is free? Who will take him before court to test the question of his freedom? In ignorance of his legal emancipation, he is kept chopping, splitting, and plowing. Lincoln continued, When the white man governs himself, that is self-government. But when he governs himself and also owns another man, that is more than self-government. That is despotism. If the Negro is a man, why then, my ancient faith teaches me, that all men are created equal, and that there can be no moral right in connection with one man's making a slave of another. Lincoln continued to attack Douglas's argument that local governance trumped all. Nebraska, he said, quote, is part of ourselves. Lincoln said he wanted Nebraska for, free white people, but added that Northerners had every right to decide what shape Nebraska took. He noted that the Three-Fifths Clause overrepresented slaveholders in Congress, and that spreading slavery would reduce the voices of free states. If that was self-government, Lincoln said, quote, I should like for some gentleman deeply skilled in the mysteries of sacred rights to ride himself with a microscope and peep about and find out, if he can, what has become of my sacred rights. Nebraska, and the spirit of 1776, he said, were utter antagonisms. Lincoln urged his listeners to elect representatives from the anti-Nebraska coalition. Members of the coalition, he acknowledged, had been at odds in the past, and they were asking voters raised to hate their opponents to put aside their conflicts. Douglas made that apparent disorder a point of attack. But Lincoln said those differences sank under the coalition's shared patriotism and anger at Douglas's actions. Quote, "We were thunderstruck and stunned, and we reeled and fell in utter confusion. But we rose, each fighting, grasping whatever he could first reach: a scythe, a pitchfork, a chopping axe, or a butcher's cleaver. We struck in the direction of the sound, and we are rapidly closing in upon him." When the storm shall be past, he shall find us still Americans, no less devoted to the continued union and prosperity of the country than heretofore. The crowd cheered the speech. Douglas immediately got up and spoke for another hour, claiming that Lincoln had gone at him, quote, without mercy. Lincoln had landed his blows. In front of an audience of people from around the state, he had stared down Illinois' leading politician. He had also thrust himself into state politics in a way he hadn't before. Prior to the Springfield Address, Lincoln had been well known in Springfield and the Eighth Judicial Circuit, but he was obscure elsewhere. One man later said, Men of influence from every county of the state, substantial men and politicians who had gathered together at the holding of the fair had heard him. On that day, he opened the outer gate of the path he followed to the presidency. At the time, though, Lincoln and his allies believed that portal led to the U.S. Senate. We'll conclude our second season next week with a look at Lincoln's quest for a Senate seat and the forces that arrayed themselves against him. We'll also see him make critical moves that will provide a foundation for the Illinois Republican Party.